0: All right, in just a moment, I'm going to read for us from 1 Samuel 22, and I want to invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles or in your bulletins, as is best for you. Uh, You will recall a couple of weeks ago, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we saw when David was on the run that one of the first places that he went to was the city of Nob. It was a priestly city, and there... He secured provision for himself, bread, uh, and the sword of Goliath by the story that he told to one Ahimelech, who was the priest there. Now, there was a verse that I read there, but I didn't comment on at the time because I knew we'd come back to it uh, this Sunday. But there's an ominous verse that's kind of tucked there in chapter 21, verse 7. It reads like this. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And as we open up our passage today, we see Saul kind of holding court under a tree. He's got a spear in his hand, which is a symbol of authority, and when Saul has his spear in his hand, It's kind of a sign that no good thing is going to come after that when we read of Saul in that position. And he's brooding. He's brooding over the fact that David is, first of all, elusive. He can't find him. But apparently he knows that he's been discovered and now other people are going out to join David, which makes David to him more of a threat. And he wonders why all of the people around him are conspiring against him. If not actively, then at least by passively not telling him what's going on. So Saul's going to grow in this suspicion. We're going to see it snowball throughout this passage. Here, the Word of God, this is a hard passage, uh, verse 6 to the end of 22. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, and by the way, son of Jesse is going to be the way he refers to David here. He won't honor him by saying his first name. It's just going to be son of Jesse throughout. Will the son of Jesse... Give every one of you fields and vineyards. Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub." And he answered, here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech you and all your father's house and the king said to the guard who stood about him turn and kill the priests of the lord because their hand also is with david and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me but the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the lord then the king said to doeg you turn and strike the priests And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life with me. You shall be in safe keeping. Great God in heaven, this is your word given to your people. We need you today to speak to us, to speak through your word to us, to soak it down deep inside of us. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, absolutely no introduction this morning. We're going to dive right into this brutal episode that we find in the word of God And the first question I'm going to ask, and in looking at it, is what does this passage teach us? What are the doctrines? What are the things that we are to understand about God, about humanity in this passage? First, we are confronted in this passage by the reality of evil. We might want to turn away. We might not want to look at a passage like this or look long at a passage like this, and that's understandable, right? To avoid seeing something like this, to reading about something like this, would seem to us to be a better thing. But periodically, at least, God, in his word, makes us look at something like this, brings it to the fore as we're preaching through a book, so that we can understand that evil is real that depravity is real. Now, there are ultimately, as we read in the book of Ephesians, and uh, I've quoted at least a portion of Ephesians 6 on the front of your bulletin this morning, there are ultimately cosmic powers. There are spiritual forces of evil or spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But what this passage shows to us is that those forces of evil, those forces of wickedness, are not restricted to the heavenly places. Instead, it shows us that humanity has the capacity to act willingly in the spirit of on behalf of, in accord with the thoughts of those cosmic powers of wickedness, we execute evil and wickedness on the earth. Perhaps months, I think it was maybe even a year ago now, when we read the story of Saul and the command that was given to Saul to go out and to kill all of the Amalekites, perhaps We felt some level of understanding for Saul when he didn't do that. When he left alive, at least, Agag, the king, and did not kill him. Perhaps we could understand or had some sympathy about that. here, we see that any such sympathy that we may have had for him in that situation was misplaced. It was misplaced. Saul and Doeg embody evil here. They embody and they reveal to us the totality of total depravity. Now, when you've heard this doctrine of total depravity talked about, I'm sure, I'm sure because I've said it, um, I'm sure you've heard it said that total depravity doesn't mean that we are as wicked as we could possibly be. It means that we, in and of ourselves, have no capacity to do that which is good, that which is holy before a holy, holy, holy God. But every once in a while, we get to see what total depravity looks like in its totality. And this is one of those places. This is one of the places where we see it embodied. Saul wouldn't enact the ban, the holy war on Agag and the Amalekites, but he does so here against Ahimelech and the priests of the Lord. That's what we read. Verse 18 says to us that he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, but that isn't enough. All of that bloodletting, all of that spilled blood on the ground isn't enough for Saul. It isn't enough for Doeg, and so they continue on to the city. They continue on to Nob, and that's what verse 19 tells us. He put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. There's much evil in the world. There was evil in the world in this day, and it hasn't abated much in 3,000 years. It still takes place. And the Bible doesn't pretend anything differently. It never pretends. It never just says everything's good, everything's well, everything's fine. It's a beautiful world, and that's all. It doesn't pretend. It puts it before us. Evil is real. The second doctrine. We see that even evil, at its worst, serves the will of God it may be the will of God in providing mercy in some way that we can't see or it may be the will of God in judgment or the will of God in justice that is being revealed in a particular passage the most wicked act the most evil thing that has ever been done in human history is the execution of the innocent son of of God. And the scriptures could not be any clearer when they say that that was according to the purposes and the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. Acts 2, Acts 4, Ephesians. This is the most wicked thing that has ever taken place, and it was serving the will of God. So, what about this text? Ahimelech is in the line of Phinehas, the son of Eli. Okay, the priests from way back at the beginning of this book, the evil priests, Phinehas, and his brother. And the servant of God comes to Eli, and he tells Eli what is going to be the judgment against his sons because of their wickedness and Eli's failure to restrain that wickedness. So I'm going to read to you now from chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Therefore, and this is the the, the servant of the Lord, the man of God speaking. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. This in chapter 22, is that. This is that. This is what is taking place here. There's a line in that opening hymn in the third verse that, that I really think has to get ingrained into us so that we understand this reality the, The line in the hymn, and it comes almost directly right out of Psalm 76, is in the wrath, even, in the wrath of man shall praise you. Your designs, it shall fulfill. The wrath here, Saul, the wrath of Doeg is serving the purposes of God. The declared intent of God is being fulfilled at this moment. Now, let's be clear. We can't discern every purpose of God. We can't trace every line and say this is exactly why that happened. Those things are not revealed to us. Those are the secret things that belong to the Lord, how all of these things fit together. But what we can learn from the word of God, what we can learn from his revelation to us is the almighty power and unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God manifest themselves in his providence over all things. That's our confession from earlier. Manifest themselves in his providence over all things from the very first sin to all of the sins that come after that. That's the almighty power of God. That's the unsearchable, the inscrutable wisdom Of God. How? Why every time you're allowed to cry out? As long as after crying out at some point you put your hand on your mouth. And you're silent. Before the king. Before the almighty one. And the trust goes back to him. This text before us today in all of its ugliness bears witness. To the providence of God even in the midst of evil, even when men are trying to do their worst, third doctrine. We are responsible for our own wickedness and evil. Saul and Doeg are responsible. They are guilty. The evil is theirs and the judgment will be theirs as well. We are on the hook for our own willful disobedience to the word of God. No, the devil made me do it. No, an evil spirit from the Lord made me do it. No, who can resist his will? No, my friends push me into it. No. No. We're on the hook for it. Psalm 52. Over the past couple of weeks, I've pointed out the Psalms that are connected with the various passages that we've been in. Today's is Psalm 52. Psalm 52. Verse 5, and this is essentially David addressing the wickedness of Saul and Doeg, says this, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Why? Because you are responsible. You did this. You murdered the priests of the Lord and you're gonna be held to account for it is what God says. Ironically, the only one who takes any responsibility for what takes place in this passage is actually David. Did you see it in verse 22? I kind of slowed down as I read that section. David says, I have occasioned the death of all of the persons of your father's house. You wanna say, wait, David, that's Saul and Doeg. Saul and Doeg did that. David says, I have occasioned it. To repent. To repent is to acknowledge responsibility. To seek refuge in the Lord. And to, by God's grace, bring forth fruit in keeping with that repentance, which David does in providing safety for Abiathar. We are responsible. Saul and Doeg are responsible. The sinfulness of their actions, quote, proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. That's what we confessed before as well, and that's the reality of here. You can't blame it on God. Those are the doctrines that we see here. The reality of evil. We see the fact that God continues to work out his purposes even in evil. And third, we have just seen that responsibility belongs to man. Here's our second question. What does this episode do to your hearts? What does it do inside of us when we read this? Now, I get it, and we've mentioned this before. When something took place 3,000 years ago in another part of the world, maybe it doesn't grip our hearts in exactly the same way it would have when it took place. So imagine this. Imagine it's not at no. Imagine it's here in Philly. And all of the pastors and their families are gathered up together and slaughtered. the sword. Can we begin to feel it? Will we, in looking at a text like the one that is before us today, ask, allow the Spirit of God to get hold of our hearts? May God grant to us the gift of grief, the ability to grieve, the ability to weep, to be brokenhearted over the devastation of sin and evil in this world. May the Lord protect our hearts that are so saturated with news of terror and wickedness of every sort. May he protect us from becoming disinterested in evil, becoming detached from it, becoming cold-hearted in the face of suffering and death that we hear about. I wish I knew pastorally how to counsel us through a world in which these realities are set before us almost all the time, almost as quickly as you check your phone. I wish I knew how to say to us, These are the ones you can feel about, and you can feel to this level about them, and these are the others. You've got to not let those get on you. I'm not sure I know the answer to how to do that. I know this. I know we can't wear the grief of the world. I know we can't take every single thing upon ourselves and feel about it the way we would if it was our brother or our sister or someone we knew intimately. We don't have a biblical call to do that, and it wouldn't be possible for us to do this But what I want to cry out for is that somehow in the midst of that, that God would still grant to us tears, that God would still grant to us the ability to moan like one of the psalmists in the face of evil. So so may a passage like this, may the Spirit of God use it to just stir up in us grief. And then something else as well. A hunger for justice. Hunger to see that which is right triumph over that which is evil. Psalm fifty two is not primarily the psalm that is associated with this, is not primarily a psalm of lament. It's a plea for justice. In fact, it's really a confident declaration and a conviction that God will ultimately provide justice. It is a recognition that evil is real, that it is known to God, that it it has not escaped his notice, and that God himself will repay it. We don't know the earthly fate of Doeg. Here I was able to say, this is that. We don't know the earthly fate exactly of Doeg. We know what David said about him in the psalm, but we know this We know that David will not take it upon himself to execute the judgment of God against Saul. He'll have opportunity to do that. He doesn't say, all right, rally the troops right now, we're going, when he gets the news. He doesn't say, rally the troops, we're going right now to take out Doeg and Saul, the Lord will be with us. In both of these cases, with Doeg and with Saul... The reality is there's a hunger for justice, but it must be fully entrusted to the Lord's hand. David says, I'm not raising my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not doing that. The justice has got to belong to God. Sometimes we can see justice on this earth. Praise God. And we can work for it and struggle for it. Most of the time we won't. Trust it to God. Romans 12, I'm not going to turn to it right now. Romans 12, trust it to God. So this should stir in us. Grief, a hunger for justice. And I hope, and I think it should stir within us as well. Soul searching and a desire for mercy. With David, I'm forced to look at how my actions or my inactions, my words or lack thereof, my decisions, whether intentionally or unintentionally, harm others. Now, this murderous result, Doeg's killing all of the priests from Nob, that was certainly not David's intention, right? When he went to Nob, when he concocted that story, it wasn't his intention that this would be the result that came out of that situation. But when David looks at this, he doesn't go, well, it's and and Doe. He sees a line, and the line goes back to him. And it goes back to him. And, and so I think what comes out of this passage is a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious, wicked ways. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of, That is everlasting. And the way that is everlasting is the way of mercy. What what did Jesus take from the situation at Nob? Well, Jesus, if you remember a few weeks back, quoted from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. All right, those are the doctrines and the heart stirrings of the passage. Here's my last question for us without any adornment at all what's the application? When you look at a passage like this, what is the application for people who live in our country, who live at our time? Number one, watchfulness. Watchfulness is the application. Evil is real. It is strong and it is close. Danger, close. In Ephesians 6, if we read the totality of that passage. Evil schemes, it waits, it plots, it looks for your weaknesses, and it attacks exactly in that spot. And Paul writes, as he concludes that great section on the armor of God, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep alert with all perseverance. He doesn't tell other people to keep alert with all perseverance. He tells you to keep alert with all perseverance. You are not immune to evil. You're not immune to all the things that we see in this passage. We're not immune to jealousy or to envy or to rage or to ascribing motives to other people and evil motives to other people. We're not immune to making bad decisions. We're not immune to anger and to lying. Peter and all of these applications there coming from passages that I've strewn throughout the service this morning. Peter was a man who understood what it, all too well what it was like to fall prey to evil, right? He's standing next to Jesus or in the close presence of Jesus with a warning from Jesus. And he knew what it was like to fall to evil. And so he writes be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The man knew what he was talking about. Be watchful. Second, humility. Humility we can learn from this passage. Peter, again, in leading up to watchfulness. And this is a verse, I'm going to just read it. It's not in your bulletin, but it precedes the section He says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this picks up where we are in your bulletins. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Paul, in Romans 12, says, don't be haughty. Never be wise in your own eyes. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, beware a man thinks he stands lest he falls. And when at the end, spoiler alert, of the book of Samuel, when in that final battle there where Jonathan falls and then Saul himself will eventually fall, A song will be composed by David to describe the moment. You know the title of the song? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, I'm sure yesterday across the country, and certainly today as well, football teams playing will rally together before the game. You'll see them sometimes in the tunnel, sometimes on the field, sometimes in the locker room to get psyched up. And they'll say things to one another, they'll slap one another and 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 they'll 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 boast. We're gonna put it to them. I'm sorry, I would sound it would sound goofy if I tried to quote their words. I'm not even gonna try and do it. You've heard them do it before. But the point is to get rallied up to get psyched up for the fight that is before him, and I don't know, maybe it helps. Maybe it works in football to do that. It doesn't work in the battle for holiness. The battle for holiness. The fight begins opposite of that. Overcoming the evil one and evil begins with humility. It's the inverse. Humility is where it begins, and humility is what you confront us out of this text. Third application is, in fact, overcome. On the front of your bulletins from Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those are the marching orders. The marching orders for us are overcome evil. It's tempting when you're reading 1 Samuel chapter 22, when you're listening to the news, when you're surfing and you're looking at it day after day. It's tempting to throw up your hands in defeat and say, who can withstand the Sauls and the Doegs of the world? Even David recognizes that his words, his actions, his decisions contributed to all of this. I know my sin. I know the struggle it is to overcome my sin. What's the use? Why struggle? Back to the doctrine. Because we're responsible. Because we are responsible before God. We're responsible to humble ourselves. That's why it's commanded of us. We're responsible to lay hold of the grace of God. We are responsible to fight evil. We are responsible to overcome evil with good. Those are the marching orders that have been given to us. Jesus overcame evil. And in him we are. Saul's men didn't kill the priests. They refused. Now listen, refusing an order from paranoid Saul with a spear in his hand, it might seem like a small thing to us because we might say, well, Doeg did it anyway. Somebody wasn't doing it. They didn't do it. And David takes Abiathar, and he says, you know what? I'm responsible for this, but you got to come with me, because there's going to be safety, and there's going to be security with me. same guy's after you as the same guy is after me. Those are little things, perhaps little things in light of the whole here but they're little overcomings. We won't eliminate evil. We can't do all of the good that needs to be done, but we can accept responsibility to do something. In our own lives, with the little world, or little chunk of the world that is in front of us, we can accept responsibility to do something so watchfulness humility overcome And here's the last word i'm closing with this we're landing the plane with this word hope hope comes out of this passage now you might say that's an odd word to associate with this passage i grant you that you may have looked at the title that i provided for this sermon a lot of time i'll do the reading and then i'll read the title and then pray for us i didn't today the title of today's sermon is the steadfast love of God endures it endures you might have thought if you looked at that title uh, inappropriate maybe not maybe not the title maybe evil is real could be the title for this sermon but listen listen to what Peter says and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's hope. It's not a pretend that suffering doesn't take place. The whole letter is about how do you live in the midst of suffering. It's hope in the midst of the evil, hope in the midst of the suffering. And guess what? I didn't make up the title for this sermon, for this passage. David made it up. David made it up by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the first verse of Psalm 52, addressed to Doeg and, Doag and Saul, addressed to the evil of the world. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. You boast of evil? You boast of evil like you've done something great, like you're undiscovered, like you've gotten away with it, like you've conquered something? The steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day. David's words. The word of God, all of the souls and the dough eggs, all of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, all of the pain and suffering, all of your sins, all of my sins cannot defeat the steadfast love of God. It endures all the day. And so hold fast to hope. Never let it go. This I recall to mind, when the blood is spilled, when the limbs are hacked, the families have gone silent. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, break our hearts. Give us contrition. Sadness, sorrow, but don't leave us there. Fill us with a godly repentance, with a godly crying out, looking for mercy in you, Jesus, looking for strength in you, looking for grace in you, that which can be applied to our lives, to our circumstances, to fight against the sin that so easily entangles us. Grant to us to overcome. Grant to us to do that which is good. Grant to us hope. We pray in your name.